I was really expecting, I was really expecting the who at that point. Rick has said that this whole series, he's really wanted to hear on that intro, who are you? Who, 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 who? Who? This is week four of this series that we have been doing uh, entitled, Who Are You? In which we are looking at these questions of identity, what it means for, for us to find our identity not in the ways that the world might try to assign and ascribe identity to us, but in ways uh, that are rooted in Christ and rooted in Jesus and rooted in our relationship with Him. It's really interesting. I, I had given no thought when we started this series, that I would be ending this series on the Sunday that we would be recognizing our graduates. And it just, as the Spirit often does, works out that today is going to be an excellent word for Sarah and for Austin, as it is an excellent word for all of us. As we struggle in this world figuring out who we are and whose we are. So week one, we looked at how our identities are defined and understood as we um, behold Christ. As we look at Christ and as we, allow, as we allow Jesus to show us who God is, understanding that we are made in the image of God and how that shapes our identity. That spending time with God, that acknowledging His grandeur and His beauty develops our familiar, familiarity with the one that we are called to reflect. Talk about the fact that being a disciple is growing in Christ-likeness. And if we want to grow in Christ-likeness, we got to know what Christ is like, right? I think that's the way that works. Week two, we looked at the story from Acts at John and Peter and how after their experiences with the risen Jesus and after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on them at Pentecost, that they were, were emboldened to preach God's Word. That, that these things that they had had in their past of, of running away and even denying Christ, that those were put to the side. And they were able to resist uh, cultural pressure and politics and finances and popularity and sexuality and success and any of those things to define who they were. That their identity was rooted not in any of those things, but in Jesus. And that indeed, they say in that, in that passage in Acts 4 that they cannot keep their mouth shut about who Jesus is. Peter saying those words mere feet from where just weeks prior he had kept his mouth shut about who Jesus was. Last week, we discovered how if we behold God and root who we are in relationship with Him, that our view of others will change. That time with Jesus changes our perspective of others as we begin to see them and indeed begin to see ourselves in the way that God sees them and God sees us. And so this week, as, as we wrap up this series, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, to the story of the Exodus, 
to see how beholding God had emboldened us to go into the world with his message. And so we are in the book of Exodus this morning. We're in Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. We're going to be starting with verse 18. Exodus chapter 23, we're going to be starting with verse 18, and then we're actually going to read into chapter 20, 34 a little bit. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? And then Moses said, Please, let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed away. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds are not to graze in front of the mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed his name the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshipped. And then he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, my Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin, and accept us as your own possession. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we turn to this story of Moses and how you showed yourself to Moses on Mount Sinai. God, I would just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. may be seated. I'm about to do something that would make my mother very unhappy, but I am incredibly hot. I don't know about y'all. I do not know what the deal is, but I'm going to take my coat off, and I'm going to preach in my shirt sleeves, because otherwise I'm going to pass out. And I would rather be rude and preach in my shirt sleeves than pass out. So I apologize, and I apologize to you, mother, if you were watching. 
But goodness gracious, it's warm in here. I apologize. So in this passage in Exodus, we've seen where Moses asks to see God's glory. But, but God replies to Moses and says, look, like human beings cannot see me in my full glory and live. But God finds a way, God makes a way for Moses to experience his, his presence in a very real way. He hides Moses in this cleft in the rock. He covers Moses up as he comes by, and then as he continues down, Moses is able to peek out and see God's backside. Notice what happens here. God God does not dismiss Moses' request. Moses has asked to experience the full presence of God, and God makes a way for Moses to have that experience. He finds a way for Moses to to see a bit of himself and to live to tell others about it. You know, after this experience, Moses hides him in this cleft, covers him up, walks around. Moses sees him. And it's after that that God comes to Moses and he says, okay, remember those two tablets you had that you that you broke because of the sin of Israel. These were, in case you don't remember, these were the, these were the, the tablets that held the Ten Commandments. And the first time Moses gets the Ten Commandments, he comes down, he's got these tablets, he's like, hey guys, I've got all this stuff from God. And he realizes that they are worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses destroys these tablets. And so God has said, look, okay, you destroyed the first ones, but now we're going to do a second set. And it's after Moses has seen the glory of God that Moses has this ability, this boldness to come down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and bring them to the people. See, Moses beheld God and was then emboldened to go and share the message with his people. Moses beheld God first and was then emboldened to share God's message with the people. A little bit later in uh, chapter 34, we find, in 34.29, we find this. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. He had spent time with God. He had seen God. He had spent time with God receiving these tablets. And as a result of that, his very countenance was changed. He shone. When we spend time with God, it changes us. See, God will grant Moses the privilege of seeing more of him than, than he or, or any other man to this point had ever seen before. He will see part of God's glory, but not all of it. He will see where God has been, his, his backside. He will see where God has been, but he does not have understanding of where God is going. 
But that experience physically changes Moses. When when the people of God, when the people of God come together and they construct first the tabernacle and then they construct the temple, there is this idea, right, that, that God's pure God's presence is so powerful that it has to almost be hidden away. It's, it's hidden away in the, in the holies of holies. And there's a, there's a curtain that exists between the people and God to, to protect the people from God's glory and God's power. And in fact, only the high priest once a year can enter into the holy of holies. And if he enters in and he is not worthy to be in there, if he is unclean in any way, God may strike him dead. And in fact, there's this this interesting little thing that what they do is they tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. So in case, I guess in case they hear a thud of him going down, they can pull him out. Because no, they couldn't even go in to to get him out. They have to can we just acknowledge that's a little funny? I mean, aren't you really glad I'm not walking around up here with a rope tied around? I'm really glad I'm not walking around up here with a rope tied around my ankle because I know me and I would be down there real quick. But there's this, there's this idea that we see here in this story in Exodus and that we see throughout the Old Testament of, of God's glory and God's power being so overwhelming that it will strike you dead. But then there's this thing that happens. There's this thing that happens. God comes and dwells among us. And Moses had been, had been told, you cannot look on my face and live. And yet hundreds, if not thousands of people looked upon the face of Jesus, God in the flesh, and lived. God came and incarnated and dwelt among us. In fact, that passage in John where we talk about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that word dwell there is the word for tabernacle. That God's presence, just as it had at the tabernacle, just as it had in the temple, God's presence was dwelling with His people in a real, powerful way. And yet, Peter and John and James, Mary and Mary and Martha, the thousands of people who were there to hear Jesus preached when He fed them all. They looked on the face of God and lived. And then we're told in Scripture that this thing happens. We're told that this thing happens, that when Jesus is on the cross, and at the moment of His death, that there is, that there is an earthquake, that the very foundations of the earth shake and that that curtain that veil that had existed between the holy of holies and the rest of the temple is rent into oftentimes when we enter into a time of prayer i say the words will you join me as we boldly approach the throne of grace 
together. Those, brothers and sisters, are not empty words. Because Jesus came, because we can look on the face of God, because Jesus came and died and rose again, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. See, the throne of grace was the ark, the covenant. That's where God's presence dwelt. That was his throne. And we could not boldly approach the throne of grace. Even the high priest could not approach boldly, but had to approach in a spirit of humility. Now, I agree that we should be humble before God. But because of Jesus, and because of the work that he did for us, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Paul, Paul uh, talks about this um, in um, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes this, We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay, this unveiled face thing, that's sort of weird, right? When Moses comes down, he shines. He shines so brightly that he has to veil himself from the people. But this veil, this curtain, had to exist between the people and God's presence. And yet now, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are able with unveiled faces to look as in a mirror at the glory of God. We can see Him. It's interesting that Paul uses this image of the mirror here. He uses that image somewhere else. Does anybody know off the top of your head where he uses it elsewhere? It's in a letter to the Corinthians. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. Where Jesus is, Paul is talking about love. And, and he says in there that we now see dimly as through a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. We still aren't, aren't seeing God exactly. There's still a distortion. You know, one of the reasons none of us like pictures of ourselves is because pictures aren't reflections. Think about it this way. What you see in the mirror is not what everybody else sees. What you see in a photograph is what everybody else sees. Now that I've ruined your day. Because when I look in the mirror, I'm pretty handsome. But when I look at a photograph, whoo, does she have bad taste. So a mirror still distorts. It's still... It's a reflection. It's not quite the same thing. But we're able to see in a mirror, unveiled, the glory of God, the presence of God. We're able to experience that, and we are able to let it, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, transform us. <laughs> that word transform, it's, 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 it's Greek word. I bet you you're going to know what it's Greek word means. It's going to sound familiar. Metamorpho. Metamorpho. Who is not, in fact, a superhero that can metamorphosize in between things. But it's this word for transform. 
metamorphosis. To change into another form, to transform, to transfigure. It's the same word that John uses when he's describing what happens to Jesus at the transfiguration. What happens at the transfiguration? Jesus is there. He's there with with his three closest disciples, and he has metamorphosed. And they behold the glory of God. And it says that Jesus, just as Moses, that Jesus shone, and it says that those three are so taken with the glory that they are seeing that they don't even want to come down the mountain. Jesus was metamorphosed, and we are being metamorphosed. The change that takes place when we have beholden God, in fact, compels us to tell others about what we have seen. The change that takes place when we have really beheld God compels us to tell others about what we have seen. It is such a transformative experience to sit in the glory of God that like Peter and John before the council in Acts 4, we cannot keep our mouths shut. talk about what it is to be a disciple. But to be a disciple is to grow in Christ-likeness. It is to be transformed. It is to see the glory of God and be so taken with it that it changes us and who we are. A little bit later in Exodus 34, verse 32 we read that Moses, with, with his veiled face, tells the people what the Lord had said to him on Mount Sinai. 34, 32. After all the Israelites came near, he, Moses, commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. I have had an experience with God, and it has transformed me. And now let me tell you what God wants of you. Moses beheld God and was emboldened to tell the people what had happened. And in fact, Moses had beheld God, and when he comes down this time, he is shining and he is transformed, and the people don't worship a calf, but they recognize the transformation that has happened in Moses, and they receive the law of God. There's this idea that exists in, in what we think of as Celtic areas of thin places. Is anybody familiar with this term, thin place? Thin place is this idea that existed. It existed in, in pagan uh, Celtic spirituality, pagan Celtic religion, that there are these physical places, that there's something about that place that this world and the other world come so close together that the, the thing that separates the veil, the membrane that separates the thin, the, 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 this world from the other is thin. And in fact, it's almost as if this world and the other world are beginning to merge together. It's a, 
it's, it's, it's found in, in so much, um, again, of this sort of pre-Christian uh, Celtic, um, what we understand to be pre-Christian Celtic um, mythology. We don't know a whole lot. They were a pre-literate people. They didn't write things down. Most of what we have is what was written by um, literate people, whether it be the church or whether it be Rome that came into contact with them. But we do know that there were specific places of worship where they came together and they would worship in these physical places because of this idea of this thin place. But here's the thing. We experience this too, don't we? There are specific places where we can go, where we experience the glory of God in a way that is transformative. There are a couple of places, as I was thinking about this this week, there were a couple of places that came to my mind for me. One is, is this place is called Ivester Gap. If you get off the Blue Ridge Parkway at Graveyard Fields and begin walking in past the Mountain to Sea Trail into the Shining Rock Wilderness, you come up over and around a ridge and suddenly Ivester Gap is right there and on the other side of it is the Shining Rock Wilderness. So a place where there are no roads, There are no power lines. There is none of us there. It's just God's creation. And I remember one time rounding, the first time actually, that I I hiked into the Shining Rock and rounded that bend and saw Ivester Gap. And you can actually sort of see Cold Mountain over here and you see Black Balsam Knob over here, and, and the see that wilderness just roll out in front of you. The glory of God. Another one of those places for me is this place at home. It's called Topsail Hill State Park. Thompson Hill is three miles of beachfront on the Gulf Coast that outside of some test sites that were built there during World War II has never seen human development. Which, along Florida's Gulf Coast, is pretty remarkable. Because we love to bulldoze things and build condos. I always loved the fact that we would... There's a, there a, there a shopping center in my hometown called The Oaks... Well, there were oaks there before they got buildos so we could build the shopping center. But Topsail Hill is three miles. And, and when I was a kid, it, it's become more popular now, but when I was a kid and when I was in high school, man, nobody was out there. It was on the back end of the world. You had to park and you had to walk like half a mile even to get to the beach over the dunes and around the dune lakes. And it was a pain to get to. And so no one was there. And you could go out there, and if you were right in the middle, you had a mile and a half of empty beach that way, and a mile and a half of empty beach that way, and you could look out on the waters of the Gulf of Mexico and behold the glory of God. The church has done this when we build buildings, right? There's this idea of the building of cathedrals and churches that they were to be the glory of God. See, this 
There's a thing called the doctrine of common grace. And what the doctrine of common grace tells us is that it's possible for us to encounter God in creation because all of creation is His. All of creation is His design and all of creation testifies to His glory. Go back. Read the prologue of John. That's what John is saying. Now the Gospel fulfills the story. We can't see the fullness of God's story, of God's design, simply by examining and understanding creation. There is particular grace, but there is also common grace. And so, thin places, places and times where we experience God in unique ways are real. The pagan understanding was incomplete. But you have had a moment... I know that you have had a moment. And maybe it was at the footstep of the Shining Rock Wilderness, and maybe it was in a time of devotion at the coffee shop where that veil between us and God became paper thin. And you experienced His presence. In Psalm 63, the psalmist says this, So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. Now remember, this is, this is the sanctuary where there is still a barrier between the Holy of Holies and where the psalmist is standing. The psalmist is not a high priest. And yet still, standing in the sanctuary, he can see God's strength and glory. One of my absolutely favorite books, one of those books that I believe every believer should read, should have a copy of, should go back to and read again, is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity was a series um, based around a series of lectures that Lewis gave over the BBC, over the radio, in the middle of the Battle of Britain, in the middle of the Blitz. The BBC commissioned Lewis to come in and give these lectures about Christianity over the radio, and then he takes them and he turns it into a book. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this, The real problem with the Christian life comes when people do not usually look for it. It comes the moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists of shoving them back in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, and letting other larger, stronger, quiet life come flowing in. And so on all day. You wake up in the morning, and everything comes flooding in, right? You're a teacher, your lesson plan. Okay, I've got to cover this. I've got to do this. I've got to give this paper back to this kid. I need to touch base with this one because he's starting to slip a little bit. I need to give some reinforcement to this young lady. You're a parent. What comes flooding in? Concern for your kid. Man, they had a really hard day at school yesterday. I hope today's better. Or, even more mundane than that, Man, we've got so much to do today. I've got to get one kid to ball practice. I've got to get another kid to dance practice. And somehow I've got to get dinner on the table. It all comes rushing in. 
doesn't it? For me, what has been rushing in every morning until this morning was, oh God, don't let her deliver today. I haven't put the car seat in the car yet. I got it done yesterday. We're good to go. Which of course means now it'll be like weeks. Sorry. I'm sure it'll happen any time now. But these cares and concerns come rushing in, and when that happens, what happens? It pushes everything else out. Notice how, how Lewis points it. It comes in like a wild animal. Have you all ever had an experience with a truly wild animal that was coming at you? It's mm, it's scary. It's powerful. It's overwhelming. These things can come rushing in on us. But, but that's the problem. That's the problem in the Christian life. And what we have to do is we've got we've to push those things back. We've got to find our thin place and spend time encountering God. See, Lewis is verbalizing how often we march to our daily duties of work and scheduled events and we do that before we spend time dwelling in the glory of God. See, living in the glory of God takes dedicated time and effort. Living in the glory of God takes dedicated time and effort. And Sarah and Austin and everybody else, this is what I wish someone had told me. When I was your age, when I was leaving to go to college, I wish someone had told me it takes Time and effort. Because I'm going to guarantee you that 8 o'clock class is going to come really early. And it's going to be really easy to wake up and say, man, i got to get to class. Man, i got to get this exam done. i got to get this paper done. i got to go on this date. And forget that it takes time and effort to behold the glory of God. Even for Moses, he had to hide himself in the crevice. See, we experience all too often the opposite of a thin place. All too often we experience a thick place where we've got this this heavy Thing between us and God. Because we get entangled in these things that want to keep us from Him. There's this thing that we call the overview effect. Has anybody ever heard this term before? The overview effect? It's not something that we knew about until the 1960s, when we first started going up into space. If you want to put up the first of those pictures. Maybe. So there's a picture. Eh, okay. Um, there's this picture 
There's several pictures. You've probably seen pictures of the earth from space. There's this one picture that I, that I had that you've probably seen before. And it's, it's the lunar lander heading down to the moon's surface. And you see earth in the background. And the thing about that picture is every human being that had ever lived, every human being that will ever live, with the exception of Michael Collins, is in that picture. Because Michael Collins was alone in that capsule when Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong headed down to the surface of the moon. Every person alive except Michael Collins was in that picture. But the overview effect is this thing that's happened that we've discovered since John Glenn first went into space, Yuri Gagarin and before him, that when we look down and we see the earth, we begin to understand how fragile it is. And we begin to understand how interconnected it all is. And it changes perspective. And so you've had some guys in the space program who have gone up and who have come back radically changed. They talk about being in space and seeing just how thin the atmosphere that keeps us alive is in relationship to the earth and the vastness of the universe beyond. It changes their perspective, and we've come to call it the the overview effect. There are only about 500 people, only about 500 people that have ever experienced this. One of the things that's interesting is we see that it's it's cross-cultural. American astronauts have experienced it. Soviet astronauts experienced it. European astronauts have experienced it. Every human being, man, woman, no matter nation of origin, has talked about when they come home seeing everything differently. The same thing happens when we behold God. It changes everything. When we behold God, it enables us to proclaim His Word. It enables us to grow in Christ's likeness. It changes who we are. There are various ways that we come to experience and behold God. One of the ways is through the, through the study and the reading of His Word. One of the ways is, is through prayer and devotion and spending quiet time with Him. I have often said that other people would say that the, 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 the process of journaling is important to, to them, but that it's never been done much for me. Well, I've been sort of forced here recently to take up that practice because of some other things that are going on. And let me tell you how spending some time alone with God and then pouring out into a journal changes your perspective. But another way that we experience the glory of God is here at the table. For those of you who are here with us, I hope you have your, uh, your little cup. Now, if you'll notice, there is actually a little piece of cellophane at the top. And that's what separates you from the wafer. So you want to pull that back and get the wafer there. And then under that is the foil that seals up the cup. We had some folks who didn't know that the wafer was there last time. And so uh, 
So I wanted to make sure that you understood how that did. 